This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Oh, good morning, everyone. Triple R family, it is great to be here on this fine Sunday morning. I am Dr Doolittle and we have a top show planned for you this morning. Now, our panel, I've got to be honest, our panel's a little bit more medical than usual. In fact, it's 100% medical, um, which, you know, we normally try for a little bit of a balance. But um, things have been happening in the world. Our psychologist is, um, actually, I can't see, she told me it's top secret why she's not here. Anyway, it's good news, she's not here. Um, our OT um, can't make it. You know our journalist who we have on, Master Doyle? Master Doyle um, got a job. He got a job in Port Macquarie and has moved on to being to being a professional journalist oh, with wow. a paid job. You can actually tune in on you know internet radio and listen to him it's somewhere in port macquarie of course you won't want to because you'll be listening to triple r in the mornings so we've got a whole panel of doctors but it's sort of like it's almost like um i'm trying to think of the family analogy it's like when you've got this massive family reunion you've got a grandparent a parent a son a daughter a child or you anyway we've got essentially four generations we have a medical student yeah a i'm a junior doctor i'm an embryo yeah oh you could be embryonic yeah a junior doctor we have a you know pre-specialty training. We have someone in specialty training, and then we have an old man who's um, at the end of his career and just looking for a sensible quiet retirement. Very sad. Who's that? It's very who, sad. Who are we, we talking about who, there? Who knows? <laughs> who knows who yeah. that good could be? So it's going to be a real challenge to see who makes the most sense. And we've also got a big range of topics to begin with. We've got Dr. Seuss. He's going to tell us the latest on preventable preventable diseases. What risk factors contribute most to illness? Where should we, as a community, put our best efforts? Like for example, example, should it be smoking cessation, alcohol reduction or something simple like exercise and stuff like that? Anyway, maybe we should have just less rules and let people do what they want to do and stop regulating the world to the point of robotism. Anyway, we shall see. I just made that word up, by the way, robotism. Feel Feel free to use it. Um, there, then we're going to hear from this from our young doctor, who's at the beginning of his career. We're going to ask him a little bit about what it's like, to, what his medical student training was like, and you know where he heads from here. And you know we're going to ask him, is it scary? And finally, we've got a little bit of we've got an incredibly interesting um, topic that we want to talk about. Doctor Training Wheels is going to take a look at the way the health industry has treated, or in fact has mistreated, perhaps intersex people in the past. What can we learn? How can we improve? Do we need better science, or just or do we need just better attitudes. All in all, it's a pretty packed hour, so sit back, kick your boots off, light a fire, make a cup, enjoy the show, and we will be with you in a second. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. Hey, uh, welcome team. Let's say hello to our new guy down the end, Dr. Thrills. I didn't actually give you a name in my intro because, I, 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 you know, on the spur of the moment, I couldn't think of it. Dr. Thrills, how hey, are you, man? Good morning, good morning. Are you thrilled? Uh, I am thrilled to be here. Um, it's been uh, many years of studying medicine and uh, undergraduate training to get to this point in my career, but uh, I feel like I've reached some kind of a um, mountaintop. Oh, yeah, this is the peak. <laughs> yeah. Mountaintop. It takes uh, a, lot, a lot of studying to finally end up on Triple R Radio. That's true, exactly. Hey, you've been on Triple R, though, before, haven't you? I have. Um, during my undergraduate training, I decided that um, I wasn't good enough to be in a band, so I decided to pursue radio broadcasting. So I did my training with uh, the community training um, radio um, broadcasting course here yep. in 2009, and I've been doing graveyards ever since. And the last um, year or so, I've been helping out Paul E.P. on... Uh, Livewire. 
oh, we should do, you know, right now, a little, you know, a little plug for Triple How do people get involved? How did you get involved then in doing that sort of thing? Because I reckon there'd be dozens of people listening right now who are thinking, I'd love to get involved with Triple R. What was your pathway? How did you figure it out? I guess you have like a gateway show, I think, that everybody tunes into every week. And for me, I was driving to university. I think it was um, Alicia Sometimes show, The Spoke Show or something, and there were lots of writers yep. and stuff. And it was just something uh, part of um, art that I hadn't never... I'd never never really um, pursued that much and it was good to learn about it and you just get to know the, the broadcasters really well and then suddenly you're listening to everything on the grid and finding out about every... So, um, did, you, so did you do some volunteering too, you know, some general whatever volunteering work, helping out at the Radiothon and all that sort of stuff? Yeah, I guess subscribing and you're listening more and then I looked on the website and there's um, courses for um, broadcasting on, on, on the station so yep. I did that course and then through that... I started doing graveyards and then volunteering during Radiothon. Good tip. So yeah. anyone who wants to get involved should either jump onto the website and have a look or just ring up Triple R and say, I want to be a volunteer and get pointed in the right direction. Yeah, absolutely. You can be involved as much or as little as you like, but um, most important thing is your support and listening. Fantastic. Hey, Seuss. Hello. Hi. Hey, Seuss. It sounds like a um, South American name. Hey, so I meant as in, hey, <laughs> Dr. Seuss. <laughs> I've never seen it that way, but yes. Yeah. How are you, mate? I'm well. I'm well. What's yeah. happening in the world of uh, your house? Specialty trainee. What's happening in the world of specialty traineeism? Um, specialty trainees get bogged down to these things called exams. Yeah. So where are you up to um, in the exam? Well, I've got my exams in August, so life's life's a hoot at the moment. And in essence, you know, given we've got all these generations, so specialty training mostly, you know, you so you have you qualify, you do a couple of years where you have to work as a junior doctor, like the first year is called an intern year, then you're a junior resident medical officer, etc. Then at some point you go into specialty training. In a nutshell, there are about five years with exams at the four year mark. Yeah. Yeah. The, the pain can be, depending on which specialty you're in, the pain can either be a, an intense period or it can be spread out all through. Yeah, Psychiatry well, training tends to be rather spread out all through the five years. So. The other period of intense difficulty, which is probably relevant for the old uh, thrills on the end there, is getting into the specialty. Mm. Some specialty pr- programs are really hard to get into, so people fight for years doing all sorts of extra things, don't they? Psych's pretty easy, though. You just basically walk up and say, g'day. My name's Dr. Seuss. Have a brief <laughs> interview to make sure that you're not more psychotic than your patients, and well, then you're I, in, you're good. I, I would have thought the consumer experience would be helpful, but anyway. Um, and um, trainer wheels. Good morning. Our medical student, first year medical student. Do you feel, you know, I know you don't. That's why I'm asking this question. Do you feel intimidated by having, you know, lots of people who are further down the career path around you? Oh, yes, all you? these very tall men are quite intimidating. Oh, are you calling me tall too? Very, yeah, towering. <laughs> Good giant. thing we're sitting down, yeah. Because I'm sort of reaching up, I'm, you know, sort of scrambling up to reach the microphone. <laughs> but everyone in Radio Land doesn't know that. Yeah, I'm very tall. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Six three, six four. No, they're just numbers to me. I don't know. As long as I look down on the wall, world, I'm happy. I like so the, the taller you get, the deeper your voice yes. seems to get. I, don't I feel like John Moore. I don't know what that is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you're good. All good. Yep. What's happening in the... Uh, I'm, I'm getting the whole gamut. What's happening in the world of medical students? Um, exams, exams, yeah. <laughs> when are your exams? We've got exams in a couple of weeks. Uh, three weeks, yes, Friday. So when do you start studying, like the night before, two nights before? Um, hopefully a little bit earlier than right, that. Like but now? Not, yeah, ideally. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. So wait a second, I'm the only one here who doesn't have exams. Apparently oh, I don't oh. have exams. I don't oh, have exams. But you're going to have them at some stage. Yeah, I, yeah. So 
Can you I arrive? I might be called Dr. Gloat today. Yeah. Can I just gloat the whole time? Yeah. I don't know what I'll do tonight. I think I'll watch the footy, maybe watch a bit of Netflix or something like that. You guys are going to study. Have a good time. <laughs> hey, um, I suppose we should get down to business. Seuss. Yes. What are you going to do? You've got some catch-up. I do, I do. Um, it's one of the glorious things about studying for exams is that you get your geek hat on and get exposed to some very interesting information about what's so happening you in the world. Hat? Your geek hat. Oh, geek. Yeah. Geek. Oh, I hate sorry. to know what you heard. You said gig hat, as in, you know, I'm going to a gig tonight and thinking, oh, gig? Right. I'm going to see a gig. Yeah. Quite <laughs> the opposite, surely. Yeah. yeah, quite the opposite. And one of the things that I stumbled upon was um, uh, the, the, the release of a study called the Australian Burden of Disease Study. Um, it was actually dating back from 2011, but I think by the time they processed all the information and synthesized it into a proper, f- and re- released it as a paper, it was um, earlier this year. Um, and some interesting information from it. Uh, the burden of disease study was a measure of the health, it's sort of like a health of the nation study uh, and looking at burden of disease in terms of uh, the impact of dying early as well as the impact of disability um, on people living with an illness. So they measured it in what they call DALIs, uh, disability, disability adjusted life years. It's a measure of years of life lost and years of life lived with a disability. It's um, a, you know, just to stop you for a second, mm. it's an incredibly interesting concept, but it's a little bit tricky to get your head around. So the idea is every disease has a burden associated with it, which isn't just the symptoms. It's the it's how little you can do work. If you what you're going to lose from your life, what you're going to lose from your family, from your opportunities, and so it's this. So it's an attempt to try and put a number, this dally, this you know, disability adjusted life years, a number onto the burden, which is an incredibly it's weird a, thing to do. Strange to sense. quantify yes. yeah, a qualitative. Uh, and the point of it, why, yeah. why do you, why would anyone ever bother to do? such a weird thing, try and turn burden into a number. Well, I guess it's so that we can say things like in the last 10 years, the overall burden of disease has dropped by about 10%. I think that's what they've, that they're telling us now. And to be able to divide and actually compare the difference between burden due to years of life lost versus that due to years of life lived with a disability. For example, yeah. um, cancer seems to have the greatest disease burden at about 19%. Um, uh, of, of the entire study. Um, second was cardiovascular disease at 15% and then mental illness at about 12%. But it's interesting when you break it down, the cancer's total component came from um, the fact that uh, when you look at years of life lost, it contributed to 35% of that burden, but the actual years of life lived with a disability, there wasn't, it didn't really contribute very much. Whereas with mental illness, um, the years of life lost was actually quite minuscule, but the years of life lived with a disability took up 24% of the, of the um, entire sample size. Which is perhaps a more indicative gauge of the actual burden of a disease in some ways. Again, it comes down to how you define burden or how you look at burden. Um, And it depends on the point of why you're doing it because the other big point of measuring it is for politicians to try and understand where we should get get the most bang for our health buck. Mm. I I think it's also important to, I think the the DALI is also integrated with this idea of quality adjusted life years, which I think is a, a valid thing for us to think about in the healthcare system where you say, okay, yes, let's have like the most amazing um, intensive care units and let's keep someone kicking along um, and improve our years lost to life so we can reduce that amount. But what is the quality of someone's life with a disease? Um, And I think DALIs is used to calculate the quality adjusted life years, which I guess is something that we're all um, aiming to improve in all of our patients. It's a subjective, uh, subjective sample. 
Yeah, that way. yeah. Correct. Um, interestingly, I had a, f- a friend of mine who works with uh, physiotherapists who then work with people post prostate surgery, and one of the things that they they found were people who come back from prostate surgery and really angry with their surgeons, and surgeons would just not be able to understand why. Like, I saved your life. Mm. What, 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 you had prostate cancer. I've taken that. I've saved your life. But what they didn't take into account was the the extreme drop in sex, sex drive, mm-hmm. in libido that came after, and that was something that the medical model didn't really do well with scaffolding around. So all of a sudden you had people who were alive, but his quality of life was reduced to, mm. to shit. Well, you know... Oh, sorry. Did you want yeah. to... You know, that's, that's in some ways echoed... I'm trying to think of a nice way to say this. The surgical story in the last 50 years, in my opinion, and there's started to be a bit of stuff coming out on this. A few people have written books. But traditionally, surgeons see patients and follow them up for about six weeks. And traditionally, their studies don't go for a long time. And so, and we've just lived through the era where, um, you know, medical science, when I started, you know, 30 odd years ago, all studies went for about six weeks. Like even antidepressants, they studied at six weeks. No one ever followed anyone for a year. Now that just seems laughable because science has moved on and everyone looks back and goes, what were we thinking? But surgeons are a little bit slow because surgeons don't tend to do as much research as other areas of medicine. They, t- they tend to be doing a lot of operating, et cetera, et cetera. And so, and I lived through it because, at, you know, for a while um, I, was, uh, I was married to a urologist and uh, it was a really interesting story because I saw it from a couple of perspectives. So I'd hear, you know, lots about um, urological surgery like prostate surgery and also my father had um, prostate cancer and he had the surgery... When he had very mild disease, which they used to do back then and now they don't. And he was, you know, very much talked about how he regretted having oh, it. He was yeah. right in that category you're talking about. Mm. I hope he's not listening because I forgot to get permission to talk about his um, medical stuff. So dad, luckily he knows I'm quite broke at the moment, so he won't sue me. But, um, <laughs> but uh, you know, it's, it's been a really interesting story. Now yeah. everyone's, you know, really thinking long and hard about... Are we, you know, like knees changed most recently? A big study came out saying, you know, most of the knee surgery done for minor conditions, the arthroscopies, was a waste of time and money. Yeah. And so it's really starting to change now because people are following it up <laughs> quite a bit. Oh. Yeah, I mean, on that point, I think it's also, um, in, in a general sense, it's also worth thinking about that arthroscopy study and everything. I think from a surgical perspective, as um, I have a lot of colleagues um, in, in, in orthopedic surgery, and if you, have, if you take the idea that you have someone coming to you with that might be a little bit overweight, a little bit older, um, but they're not old enough to have a total knee joint replacement, and you say, okay, we'll go and do some physiotherapy, all of these things that require an internal locus of control to um, alleviate the symptoms and then you might give them some analgesia and keep on following them up year after year but they're only 50 you only have a certain amount of like bullets in your guns per se you can have conservative then you can have medical management for it and then after some period of time it might even though you might not um prolong the time between the first uh, um, onset of symptoms or the arthroscopy and a total knee joint replacement, but you might have some kind of improvement in um, symptom control, which might actually improve this person's quality of life, even though the objective outcome measure might be uh, no different. You know, I hear what you're saying, but I hear this from every specialty. I hear psychiatrists, you know, and I'm one of them, justifying antidepressants even when the evidence is pretty poor. Mm-hmm. I hear every specialty do it. And for me, I always come back to the basics thought that when you're a hammer, the the world looks like a nail. And it's very hard to... You know, it's like, you know, and it's not just for medicine, it's like for everything, you know, whatever your philosophical background is, it's hard 
So when, when anyway, you have someone sitting in that chair in front of you, that's what they and keep unfortunately us, doctors only yeah. have such a small small amount of time with people in their entire lives, how do you help them along their way, along their life journey, when you've got you know only a certain amount of bullets in the gun? These are small element of who are we really treating. Mm. We treat so the patient, how much gonna... of it is treating ourselves and our need to treat the patient and make the person feel better. But getting back to your dallies then and your yeah. burden, where where is, you know, the question I put up at the start, things yeah. like should we be putting our money into smoking, alcohol yes. or physical exercise? Yes. So they looked at one of the things they looked at was the risk factors um, for the burden of disease. And they found that 31% of the burden of disease, overall burden of disease, was actually due to preventable risk factors. Right. Now, <clears throat> this was things like tobacco use, um, high body mass, um, alcohol use, um, physical inactivity, um, and and and, dry, and dietary risk, dietary modification. Um, there was an article in the Australian talking about this study, uh, which talked about sin taxes. This idea of sin taxes, which is that we tax oh, right here, things yep. which are sinful, so oh. to speak. Primarily, that's about alcohol and tobacco. So when you consider these these preventable risk factors. Um, but then that raises the question: What about other other substances? I guess yeah. Things how do you like, tax couches? Well, sitting still. How do you, yeah. And how, what about what about butter? <laughs> yeah, and bacon. And yeah, or you watch more TV, so you have to pay more tax so because you're sitting down it, more. We think of alcohol and tobacco have been very clear examples for a long time in history. But what about all these? When it's come out um, that these other preventable risk factors, including things like. Um, lack of exercise, inactivity, and, and a poor diet. Can you tax fat? Can you tax sugar? Should we be taxing sugar? If you take the prohibition argument, or the way the war on drugs has worked for the longest time, the idea is that if you make something legal and it's there, people will use it, which, which hasn't really applied. It's why the war on drugs has failed. But if that's the prevailing sentiment, at least in legislation, then shouldn't that rule apply towards things like sugar and fat as well? And that's what they're doing in the UK at the moment, isn't they? Uh, Increasing they? the tax on yeah, sugary tax drinks. Wolf, well, you know, financial disincentives are one of the best ways to change human mm -hmm. behaviour. That's the whole basis of those Freakonomic books and everything, talking about human behaviour and looking at the financial incentives that drive it. And so I get it. But, you know, it's interesting you call them syntaxes because, you know, the whole marketing campaign against a lot of these things goes down the path of demonising the process. Yeah. You know, we've demonised smoking to the point now where, you know, someone lights up a smoke, you know, there'll be be half a dozen people staring at them like they're committing some evil sin. And uh, it's crazy because a there's so many behaviours that we do. If you ride a motorbike, if you choose to climb mountains, if, yeah, if you eat too much, if you're not exercising enough, if you have more than one standard drink or whatever it is. Um, and, you know, I think we can go too far. Like I'm particularly, you know... I'm going to go out and leave here. I'm particularly annoyed that the government's planning on putting smokes up to 40 bucks a packet by the year 2020. I mean, I just think it's, you know, that is demonising it to a crazy point. And the public's all behind it going, rah, 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 let's make those smokers pay for their sins. Whereas we don't make anyone else pay for their so-called yeah. sins. I think it's just gone too far. The issue with the smoking tax too is it ends up just being a tax on the poor. Yeah. Because yes. the lower socioeconomic individuals disproportionately are smokers and they're the ones who end up paying more. For the cigarettes. And if you're not poor now, you, you will be by anyway. the time you pay 40 bucks. <laughs> or if you're high yeah. socioeconomic and you've got a high tax on cigarettes, you don't care, so you'll just keep buying them anyway, so it probably mm. doesn't work. I think that the real, so one of the real problems with um, uh, people's choices in, in what they do, whether how much alcohol they take or um, how much junk food they eat, is that they don't really understand the risk factors that they're, or the risks that they're taking in their life. And that comes down to education. It's okay if you if you um, 
smoke and you know the un- you know the understanding that this is the chance that I'm going to get it's lung cancer. It's an informed risk. It's an informed risk, yeah. such as to, um, yeah. consenting for an operation and so on. We don't ask people who are delirious to consent for an operation. We don't, but we still ask people who are undereducated about diet and exercise to make choices about their own diet and um, and exercise regime. So I, I think actually the overarching principle is not for necessarily doctors to instigate these um, changes in societal changes, public health changes, is that we need to improve the overall education of our society. I agree. If we could have an education-only approach... Gold yeah. standard, but yeah. of course we we have this. You know the go- the way we do it instead is the financial disincentive approach and the yeah. scare approach. You know we, and I, and that's that's a shame. The problem is education is incredibly hard to do. Hey, but we're going to have to move on from this topic though because we'll go all day, <laughs> um, even though it is a ripper. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio Three Triple R in Melbourne, Australia. Uh, on the panel this morning, we've got Dr. Thrills, Dr. Seuss, Dr. Trainer Wheels, and myself, Dr. Doolittle. And um, Dr. Thrills is, as we're saying, he's um, new to radiotherapy today, so we're really pleased to have him on board. Um, and we wanted to find out a little bit about you. In particular, you've got a pretty interesting, you know, you've got a, you're in an interesting point in your career in a way because you've finished, you know, you're, in, you're an intern. So tell, tell us a little bit about, you know, how you got to where you are. Uh, so I did an undergraduate um, degree um, and then worked for a year and then uh, applied for medical school and um, was lucky enough to be accepted out of the numerous number of applicants and um, awesome doctors that um, weren't to be. Uh, then went to a university in Sydney called um, Notre Dame University and then uh, did a couple of years training in Melbourne for clinical years uh, before applying and um, getting my internship down in Victoria. So just for, for- so, what was your undergraduate course? Uh, physiotherapy. Oh, really? And yes. What did you work as a for you as a physio? Yeah, in professional sport. Ah, what yes. sport? Uh, AFL and European football. Or when soccer. you first walked into the studio today and saw me, did you like take a double take and think, "Oh, I wonder if Doctor Doolittle is actually an AFL footballer"? No, I just presume you were, and I just yeah. was rummaging through yeah. my phone and to see if I we could were get talking your about name. His height and again, it's because of my height. Yeah. Exactly. Three six four. Who cares yeah. about numbers? And your build. Obviously. Yeah. 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 Really why do Why do we enable him? Yeah. <laughs> why? <laughs> I don't get it. Um, that is really interesting, and. Um, that is a really fascinating path into it, and obviously you want to continue that path. I mean, I don't want to headline too far because I want to ask you about. We wanted to ask about med school yeah. too, but um, you want to go on to orthopedics, don't you? Correct, correct. I, I think the, what I said in my medical school interview was that essentially I think that um, my pathway is to make. Um, people or help people move better and if they move better then they they can access the world better Um, and that's my kind of like psychosocial career aspiration for my Oh, sorry if you guys feel like I'm I'm hogging the questions (laughs) because I'm just so excited by this Um, (laughs) did you deviate at all in your course did you sort of go oh god I love looking after kids I want to be a paediatrician you know bugger orthopedics or you know did you get that sort of thing as you went through or not um I have great admiration for every specialty in medicine and um, every every consultant that I've ever worked with. So there's like much admiration for that. But at the same time, um, going into the course, I knew that 
um, what my history was. My father's an architect. Um, my mum was in the arts. I've always loved working with my hands. Um, and I just think that's the best way that I can um, help people is to, is to do that. And therefore, I could never, I never wavered or never thought about doing anything else. And how good is it to have an orthopod who's also got physio training? You know, cause <laughs> as a general, you know, as a, as a, you know, I'm a psychiatrist, but I often, you know, friends and family and stuff with musculoskeletal problems. In fact, I've got an ankle problem at the moment and Trainer Wheels also does. She's on crutches. Um, you know, <laughs> and I actually had to choose, you know, like my son's got a knee problem. I sent him to a sports doctor last week, whereas yeah. I chose for myself to go to a physio first up. So yeah. I'm going to a physio on Monday about mine. You know, it's it, so having that combined, that's going to yeah. be fantastic. Yeah, I mean, I think you'll find that that's increasingly occurring with um, this postgraduate training um, that's happening all across Australia with, uh, with medical schools that lots of people People from osteopathy or chiropractor or physiotherapy are going into medical school um, headlong into doing orthopedics or sports uh, sports medicine. Um, yeah, what a great way to break down some of the barriers, but you know some of these silly barriers we've had between these various professional groups over the years. <laughs> Absolutely right. I know you did want to talk a little bit about medical school, and I was just wondering, with a background in physio, was everyone mm. always bumming you for your anatomy knowledge? <laughs> um, <laughs> Like that would be super valuable right now. <laughs> From time to time, but it's um, it's mainly it's obviously musculoskeletal specialty. So um, that's such a that's small proportion. Of, yeah, but it's a small, such a small proportion about how much you need to learn in medical school. Hey, um, Notre Dame, or as people like myself in the United States call it, Notre Dame. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> That's a Catholic university? That's correct. How does that work? Do you have to be a Catholic to go there? Uh, fortunately not. Because um, you're not a Catholic, I'm no. assuming, by that. <laughs> That's right. Um, no, no, it's just it's part of the Australian Medical Board training of um, medical students, so the, the, the training is standardised. Um, but it was an interesting process um, because, obviously, the school is... Obvious, uh, the university wants you to go to um, placements at um, Catholic institutions and Catholic healthcare has been one of the biggest providers of um, healthcare in Australia, apart from the government, of course. Um, It might be controversial, but one thing that piques my curiosity is how that works in terms of um, the guiding principles when it comes to things like abortion, when it comes to things like contraception. Um, Is that something that you find impacted upon your training in any way? Uh, Personally, I don't think it impacted on my training per se. Um, I think that it's kind of a difficult question to answer because I think that our society is essentially secular, um, made up with a bunch of um, religions and belief systems and atheism is one of those. And if our dollars for training of young doctors and treating of patients goes to public institutions to train these people, they're, they're it's incumbent upon these institutions to give a standardised level of, of learning, mm. which, which Notre Dame does to an extent. I guess that was my question in terms of how it's so what do it down they, in reality. Yeah, so what do they teach? Like, do they teach you about, you know, they must, I'm assuming. Do they teach you about contraception and about abortion and about um, how to help um, the person who comes along in a non-judgmental way make their own decisions? Absolutely. I mean, I think that maybe that's 
in some way a benefit of a religious institution where they can be open to that, but at the same time it's very closed to the to pursuing an understanding of other belief systems. Um, but there's this, the, the clinicians who teach are basically the same as you would get at the University of Melbourne or University of Sydney, where you know doctors are doctors; they're very skeptical about um, big organisations. Religion is just one of them. Um, but I think. Really, the difference that I saw was in religious institutions in healthcare, where um, one of the points that, that, that really stood out to me in my training, I was um, at a hospital that um, didn't do uh, abortions, and there was a woman who was a public patient, and this hospital was receiving public money f- to treat this patient, and they were 18 weeks pregnant with an incompetent cervix, which meant that the cervix of this woman would not hold the baby until yep. full term until the baby was viable um and there was a risk to the obviously the baby but to the to the woman if mm-hmm. the pregnancy was was allowed to continue at at that particular institution um she had to be transferred out because um to a to another hospital that would do a controlled um abortion um so, because they wouldn't do that in that institution, and I thought, was it the lack of expertise because they just didn't have the practice in doing it yeah, because the they didn't? Or no, was it, it was just the belief system. It was the belief system. There was a there were quote from the midwife saying, "We can't do that in this hospital." In inverted commas, and they had to be they had to be moved. Now, my problem with that is not that um, Catholic hospitals exist, but if you want to go to a Catholic hospital, that is fine, and you you're Catholic and or you know you you're happy to go along with their rule system. That that's no problem with that. But if you have a public hospital taking public money in a sec- in a secular society, and that the person that has no choice about where they go because it's a public hospital system um, gets rules placed upon them that they may or may not believe in themselves and their care is maybe not compromised but changed to the gold standard that we have in Australia, then I think that that's something that we need to address. Yeah, I sort of agree with you. It makes me feel uncomfortable. But the only thing I would say that I'd slightly disagree, people do have a choice where they go. Unlike some areas they don't, like mental health's completely area-based, which I feel is discriminatory. Mm-hmm. But general health isn't. Like, I can walk into... If I'm a Catholic, I can choose to walk into St. Vincent's, or if not, I can choose to walk into somewhere else. But that, that doesn't... But in an emergency situation no, or exactly. something, yeah. you have to go yeah. to that hospital. And also, if you live yeah. just nearby, as That's you right. say, of yeah. course you're going to go there, and why should your public money yeah. be um, influenced by someone's belief system when they're taking money from everyone's taxes? Mm. Do we want to move on from the Catholic thing, or is it okay if I make yeah, one no, more move comment? On. Oh, no, 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 I'm, I'm sorry, more, no, more? no. Okay. I just think it was quite interesting that the Catholic hospitals do... Um based on a bit of reading that I did, have a history of kind of putting their belief system aside in certain situations. So apparently in the 80s and 90s, I believe, in um, Sydney when the HIV crisis was huge among homosexual men, the Catholic hospitals there opened their doors to Absolutely. And that's something that patients. Yeah, and that's something that Catholic institutions are very good at, opening their doors when no one else will. But the pro- the, the, in that situation, there's, that, it doesn't compromise a belief system. The They're taking to, everybody the doors in. to royal commissions and investigative bodies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those doors stay sometimes a little shut. 
No comment. <laughs> Why is everyone going mad looking at me? No, that's not we controversial. Mentioned, we mentioned no, moving it's... on a second ago. This might be a good time. Yeah. Um, but, uh, look, I trained at a Catholic hospital too. I went to St V's in Melbourne. And um, and also, don't forget, a lot of the rules... You know, early on, um, there was no clear guidelines, but governments now given and medical bodies have given very clear guidelines. If you have a philosophical um, opposition to something, no matter what it is, whether it's religious-based or something mm. else, and it's a treatment that's available, you have an absolute undeniable obligation to tell the patient that other people have different beliefs and there are other options and here and you got an obligation to give them those options. Here are some other doctors or nurses or healthcare providers who can give you the other side of the, the opinions on the other side of the coin. The, the question is, in, for example, Europe, uh, Sweden or the NHS in the UK, they, there is no religious institutions per se. There's private religious institutions, mm-hmm. but there is no um, system where um, you can go to a public facility and your care, even in the, the smallest way, is changed because of a belief system. And I think that that's maybe something that we need to consider with our public health dollar in Australia. Fair point. Hey, um, let's move on in case sure. I'm, we're saying stuff too controversial and people are getting berserk, <laughs> going berserk at us out there. Well, you're, you're looking yeah. like John Laws, so maybe... That's why we're doing it. <laughs> so uh, where are you heading? So you're like, you're right in the middle. You've finished your training. Yep. You're in your intern year. Yep. And obviously, I've already flagged this, you're looking towards an orthopaedic career. That's right. Uh, in Australia, um, the surgical training is kind of similar and it differs on, on how popular your particular field of interest um, is to get into. So you, um, everyone does an intern year, general year, um, which is mandated by the, um, the Australian Practitioners Health Agency. At the end of that, you get a full licence and you become a re- what's called a resident. Now, the time you're a resident is differs between uh, medicine practices, surgical um, and uh, general general practice, um, it can and it can vary from one to two or three years, or as long as you want it to be. Essentially, um, for my career path, orthopedics are very um, very popular specialty for varying reasons. But you do your internship year, and then you do a minimum of two years as a resident, and then after that, you can become what's known as a um, accredited registrar where you're you've applied to the college of surgeons in australia you've gone through the interview process and they've accepted you this is not very um often that this happens in orthopedics for example um and even less so in plastics so often you have to do an unaccredited registrar position which means that you are only doing that specialty let's say plastic surgery or orthopedics but at the same time you're not progressing towards that path in a direct way to becoming a specialist. Okay, so you've, let's see, so you've done, say, three years or four years or whatever undergraduate degree. Correct. Then your um, graduate degree, three years to become a doctor. Yep. Then your intern year, okay, accept that. What's the point of that? And then you've got these two resident years and then you mm-hmm. go on to specialty training that might be hard to get into. What's yep. the point of those two resident years? You've already done an intern year. Why do you need another two years before you can start specialising? Well, I guess, I mean, that's my point of view. I mean, I, I think that... Um, we are i'm too young to question the system that we have in australia but i guess what i what i'm interested in is the fact that in other areas big areas such as the united states and europe we don't have this sort of general preamble before starting specialty training so you can go into specialty training almost straight out of university yeah you still have to do an intern year in the u.s yeah um u.s i don't think there is no intern year and you start to sort of specialize even when you're in medical school and you become 
come out as a resident, which is someone who is actually learning that specialty training. And I know um, having done um, a medical school placement in Sweden and Germany that you come out of medical school and you apply to a hospital in your specialty training area, it might be cardiology, it might be psychiatry, it might be orthopedics, and you study for those specialties as soon as you get out of medical school. So the disadvantage is that you decide earlier and you might, you know, you have to decide earlier. The advantage you is you finish your training earlier. Oh, you can still stay general you can, if you, you want. You can stay general if you like to and you can s- switch around. But the, the opportunity is there if you know what you want to do to pursue that. I worry about that. Um, mainly for the for the fact that I think you're a I think you're a doctor first and then an orthopedic surgeon second or a doctor first mm. and a psychiatrist second and the risk of pigeonholing yourself way too early is that mm. you completely lose the general focus mm. um, you end up not really having much perspective in the world of general medicine mm. and you end up if you're a psychiatrist you talk about hammers and nails if you're a psychiatrist mm. then you see you only see the mental illness mm. but if you're an orthopedic surgeon you only see the knee or the heart mm-hmm. as it may be and forget that it's actually within the larger scheme of a, of a person and not only the, the kind of lifestyle choices and the, the social aspect of the person, but also the, the way the medications that you prescribe or the mm. operations that you carry out, how mm. that affects the rest of that body and how that affects that person um, going through a burden of disease. Yeah, and, and, and I think that those that argument needs to be um, hammered out by specialties and senior doctors, and, and it's not for me to offer opinion sure. on that. I reckon okay. it is for you to offer an opinion because you're the one being affected. You're the one because, doing it. Yeah, and because also... So the flip side yes. of um, Seuss's point, which I totally acknowledge, mm. is that in Australia now, because we're, you know, a lot of universities have moved to the postgraduate model, mm. you know, you're going to be about 30 by the time you start specialising potentially. Yeah. You're going to be about late 30s by the yeah. time you finish. Now, not only the cost to the community of, you know, we're only going to get about 20 years of value out of our mm. specialists who have cost, you know, hundreds of thousands, mm. but also the personal cost. What if mm. you what if you want to start a family? What if, yeah. you know, we, we're trying to encourage, as, um, you know, as much gender equality in medicine, you know, and we're going to, we're making it tough for a lot of mm, developmental milestones like having kids and, you know, buying your first home and et cetera. Yeah, I I think that that's that's my main contention with this. You you take women who who might do an undergraduate degree, let's say the fastest they can do, they finish when they're 21, they go straight into medical school at 21 and they finish at 25, 26. It's a four-year postgraduate training and I'd say 80% of uh, medical graduates come from a post-training, a post-graduate training program. And then they start their internship in three years and they're coming up on 30 before they actually are accredited trainees in surgical programs. And as we all know, that um, that, that is the main time for making babies. Hey, um, it's really nice to, you know, to talk to someone at your phase of training and, you know, it's great to hear that you're thinking about all these things. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. By the way, while I've got you in the mood for announcements and knowledge, don't forget to check out our Facebook page. It's called Radio Therapy RRR. I had to think carefully then. Radio Therapy RRR and, you know, whatever, like us, follow us, whatever you want. See what we've got on the show. Put up questions. Although I must apologise a few times lately. People have put up questions. It's taken us about two weeks to answer them. We're a little bit on the slow side. Hey, we better get on with business. Dr. Trainer Wheel saw a movie called Intersection and it got her thinking. It Let's did. hear more. Sure. So the film, I, I should... Okay, I'll talk a little bit about the film first. The film 
is a documentary about intersex people and their experiences with the medical profession, um, interventions during childhood or the lack thereof. Um, and I should start by saying that it's a really fascinating topic, which I knew next to nothing about before watching the film and I've done a little bit of reading since and I still don't know very much Um, and in hindsight it probably would have been good to have an intersex person or you know someone with more expertise on the show to talk about it. Let's flag it though because I you know I'm the same as you Um, when you sent you this topic late in the week you know I had a look at the movie too and I had the same feeling as oh my god why haven't we covered this topic and I wish you know I thought and I thought to myself maybe we should put it off and get someone on but let's just flag it for a show later in the year if there's anyone out there who's got an interest otherwise we'll do some google searching ourselves and we'll find someone so in the meantime um maybe i'll start by just explaining what intersex is very broadly because i didn't really know what it was it's the i in lgbtiqa plus um in it's people who it's defined by the un free and equal which is the un's body for lgbt equality it's people who are born with sex characteristics that don't fit typically binary notions of male and female um People, so, for example, someone might appear female according to their external genitalia um, and their sex characteristics like breasts and things, but they might have testes internally rather than ovaries, vice versa. And there's also a lot of other variation that can occur as well. Um, intersex is a very broad term and it can include variations to the external genitalia, the internal genitalia, the gonads, chromosomal patterns of sex, Hormones. Hormones, lots of different things. So it's, it's, what, it's very, very... It's what, although the term is um, not used now, except some people still choose to use it, um, it, in the old days it's what used to be called a, an hermaphrodite, yeah? Yes, that's right. Yep. But I think the official word is yeah, that's changed. not to go anymore. Yep. Um, so this documentary was really fantastic. According to the film, they talk, so the, the film talks particularly about babies born with ambiguous external genitalia. So according to the film, one in 2,000 babies born have ambiguous genitalia, and they're so ambiguous that doctors actually can't tell if the baby is a boy or a girl, according to our sort of traditional notions of sex. Um, that's actually more common than spina bifida, and it's almost as common as cleft palate, just for reference. And it goes totally unrecognised a lot of the time, too. Because... You know, often even found at autopsy, for example, people their whole life live with it no one knows and sometimes they don't realise themselves. That's right and sometimes it can be found sort of late in adulthood when people are trying to have babies and they find that they're infertile and they've actually Mm. been intersex their whole lives and they didn't know. Um, And also a big reason why it goes unheard of a lot of the time is because in the past it's sort of been covered up. So starting in the 60s especially these surgical interventions were started on babies, infants and children right up until adolescence where surgeons would alter the external genitals of these babies to sort of make them conform more to traditional male or female in an attempt to what they you know their justification was it'll stop with gender confusion and um and it'll help the the child to be not be discriminated for being different and i think the point see the, the this whole thing came from the harvard medical school in the 50s or 60s and they even called it normalizing surgery um you know which is such a you know now of course Don't you know makes that. a shudder mm-hmm. um because the whole point is biology throws up a whole lot of different versions of sexuality there's a whole lot of different versions yes. whereas humans attribute 
pretty much use this binary approach of you're either a man or a woman, which biologically is essentially nonsense. Yes. There's a whole lot of different, you know, biological variations, not, you know, with different genes, XXY, et cetera, et cetera, not to mention all the other, um, you know, things we mentioned, hormones and stuff. And so and the concept in the 50s and 60s was that if you assign the baby um, a, a particular sex early on, give them a, 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 the equivalent hormones, then nurture, you know, how we bring them up will decide whether they're a boy or a girl, which essentially turned out has yeah, turned out the not idea to be true. of giving them a gender mm. as opposed to the gender just developing completely organically and spontaneously. Exactly right. And there was an example of a person in the film who um, found out when they were older, obviously, but their, their parents' friends knew that this person's parents had had a son and when the son was one or two years old, that son disappeared and all of a sudden they had a daughter um, with a different name and all the photographs of the boy disappeared and the, the birth certificate had been altered and all these things and, and that's why we don't hear about it a lot of the time is because it was covered up. Um, it's a surprisingly common condition but it's something that we sort of swept under the rug. Um, I, I, I'm still, a, you know, one of the big things, there's a couple of really good websites I, I found when I was reading up about this just, you know, recently. One is the Australian website which is called oii.org.au and it's stands for and just the um, organisation Intersex International. That's an international group. That's where the OII comes from, and it's the Australian branch. It's got tons of data, but one I actually liked a little bit more. I'm sorry to say because it's um, it was much more readable. Was the North American very unpatriotic um, yeah the Intersex Society of North America. It just beautifully in their FAQs, their frequently asked questions. It went through every you know thing in a really nice, user friendly, easy to read manner. The Aussie site's incredibly informative, but it's a series of links to really long and clever documents that, you know, take a lot of digesting. I think both together make a really, you know, give a really good understanding. And a big part of the problem is that these interventions happen when a child is very young often, like sometimes only a couple of years after birth, um, before the genitalia have actually finished developing. So this can cause a lot of sexual dysfunction later in life. So often during this kind of reassignment period or, you know, this sort of whatever you want to call this augmenting that sort of went on, which still, I believe, can go on in It still does. Places. I mean, the gist of a lot of these things is, you know, the gist of their political campaign is twofold. One, reduce stigma, create acceptance, but two, try and... Around a lot of the world, according to the websites that I read, it's still really common to do the reassignment mm. surgery at an early age. And, the, again, the, you know, the North American society had some really good guidelines about um, what do they recommend for children with intersex and it's essentially about um, you know, not doing anything till the child's old enough yeah. other than treat medically, things that have to be treated mm -hmm. medically, like often there's um, you know, for example, urological abnormalities and mm -hmm. children can't pass urine properly, so mm -hmm. you have to correct those things or they'll get infections and kidney damage. But other than that, you wait till they're old enough, you provide support for the parents, you um, provide appropriate counselling, you put them in touch with doctors who are familiar not only with the medicine but with the politics and, mm -hmm. and the cultural understanding and that sort of stuff. Um, and they're trying to do a whole lot to try and educate doctors because, mm. you know, and this struck me when I was reading about it, you know, they say on these websites that the medical profession's grossly undereducated about these mm. things and I'm sitting there reading them, a 20-year doctor, clearly grossly undereducated myself. Mm. So I couldn't help but, uh, you know, totally agree with them. You know, I was reading stuff thinking, how can I have not... 
known this stuff. It's really, you know, because so not only is our history a little bit, in, not a little, uh, not only is our history in places very shameful in this respect, our current state of affairs is either. pretty poor too. Yeah. Um, it's one of those things anyway. So yeah. these, these poor people later in life in adulthood who have had, you know, a lot of the sensitive tissue of their genitals has been removed. So they are unable to have any sexual pleasure. Sometimes they've had so many surgeries that there's just so much scarring down there that it's very painful for them to have sex. And, and you know, obviously barring medical conditions, um, at least in this film, there were there was testimony from from intersex people who hadn't had interventions and had lived quite happy, healthy lives, you know, despite their weird genitals or, you know, these abnormal genitals by our standards. Um, they, yeah, I think they, you used the word weird there um, by in the In inverted commas, yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah, yeah, inverted commas, yeah. um, they can be fertile a lot of the time, intersex people with assistance, um, and they can have very uh, satisfying sexually pleasurable lives often um and and that sort of seems to be the protocol now is you know as you said don't intervene I remember when I was applying to medical uh, for internship last year, a lot of the hospitals had this idea of patient-centred um, care mm. at, at the heart of each hospital's um, policies. And I think that this issue comes down to patient-centred care. Absolutely. If you allow these things to go on as they need to go on and you allow um, and you allow people to choose and they eventually end up with the right 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 uh, solution. That's exactly right. Um, I'm so sorry we had to rush this. We went too far with the other stuff. We're going to come back to it. We're going to try and get someone who's either an expert or a consumer, someone who's intersex who wants to talk on the radio to do a show about this later in the year. Just a heads up, if you want to find see the movie, there is a website. It's called intersectionfilm.com um, and intersection spelled I-N-T-E-R-S-E-X-I-O-N. Hey, um, I have to do a quick finish because we've got to finish right on time for Einstein and Gogo because they're scientists and they're very numerical and they'll get mad. There's 15 seconds for me to say thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks, Dr. Thrills, for coming on. Great to meet you. Thanks, Dr. Seuss. Thanks, Dr. Training Wheels. I'm Dr. Doolittle. I hope you've enjoyed Radiotherapy. Don't forget our Facebook page. There's three seconds to go and I'm going to go right up to the moment now. Bye-bye. I feel that if people are not too embarrassed to take off their clothes to wash the genitals with soap and water, literally with people they don't know and will never see again... Ooh, whole business still turns me off. It all sounds a little sick to me. Be a little tolerant. Triple R. This has been a podcast from Free Triple R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.